I'd like for you to turn to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. And this is the second part of the sermon that I preached last Sunday, began to preach. Last Sunday was Soul Winning, Soul Winners Commitment Day, and, and we talked about um, are there any models that can help us to become um, effective communicators of evangelical truth. George Hunter's book, The Contagious Congregation, says that the single most effective model for speech persuasion is Aristotle's model found in the classic rhetoric of Aristotle. And Aristotle says that a communicator, a persuader, has three resources to be an effective communicator. There is the logos of the message itself, that which is contained in the message. The pathos of the auditor, that is, what is going on in the life of the person who is hearing. And what he's hearing is this, is he, is he saying anything that gives me hope? And, and, and then there is the ethos, the ethic of the messenger. We looked at the logos and the pathos, and we come to what is probably the most dynamic of all. In speech persuasion, in effective evangelical communication, and that is the ethos, the ethic. What is in the being and the personality of the person who is sharing this thing called faith? And the example of it is the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. I want to begin reading at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You've well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You shall worship that which you do not know. We, you worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. And when He comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. I love it. And at this point, His disciples came and they marveled that He'd been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all things that I've done. This is not Messiah, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to Him. The ethos of the messenger 
plays a key role in the believability of the message. There is an old folk axiom that says, what you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. That's close to the principle of Aristotle. I think he would remit it to say, what you seem to me to be speaks so loudly, it greatly influences how I respond to what you say. Does this bringer of the message have credibility? Does this Christian really live in this house from which he speaks? Or is he just a propagandist of the modern church? When you watch those folks do those commercials on television, do do you find yourself saying, I wonder if she really drives a Volkswagen. I wonder if the boss really uses right guard, you know. And so Sybil Shepherd comes on there, this star of the favorite series, Moonlighting, and she's uh, promoting our consumption of beef. And there's this beautiful uh, New York strip, or whatever they call it, that piece of steak, just lying there, just so delicious, just nestled in a little green salad with a baked potato on the side. And she's promoting our consumption of beef. So believable. In a few weeks we learn she's a vegetarian and, and won't eat beef. No wonder people wonder, you know, is this really true that these folks are saying? I mean, is there really something in his life that makes this believable? Decades ago, Oliver Wendell Holmes made this statement. He said, the reason why anyone does not give, a, give assent to your opinion or aid to your purpose is in you. For he does not see you as a bringer of truth. For uh, because you believe that you have it. And all the time he believes that you have it not. Because you have not given him the authentic sign. The authentic sign is what Jesus possessed. It's why committees came back to Pharisees and said... We don't know about this guy, but one thing we are certain, he has the authentic sign. He speaks as no other man speaks. There was something in him and his being and personality that made what he said believable, the authentic sign. Now I wonder what that is this morning. I wonder what it is that causes people to to believe what we say is true. I think there are two or three factors involved in it. And, and I've kind of worked up an alliteration, you know. All week I worked on it. Got my thesaurus down. It took me all week so that you can remember this. One factor of this authentic sign is competence, is expertise. Does this person, does he or she really know what he's talking about? Does she really know why she believes this? Is there competence there? Is there expertise So that after this woman got over the shock of the fact that this Jew would talk to her, a woman, a Samaritan, she was literally awestruck by what he knew. And she said, I perceive, sir, that you're a prophet. And she began to talk about worship. And he just interrupted her and gave her a little lecture on worship. And and she said, well, when Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything. He'll declare all things to us. And the end of the story is that she went running back into the city and said, come see this man who's told me everything. For it was obvious that she had discovered the authentic sign, his competence, 
his expertise. He knew what he was talking about. Do you know what you believe? And do you know why you believe it? And if someone were to challenge you, could you substantiate what you believe in Scripture? This lady who does this film series for us on Sunday night, I can never remember her name. She tells about when she was working with InterVarsity Fellowship, she went into this student center of this large university and she was there among many hundreds of students and she was trying to develop a, 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 you know, a way to witness to them and she said these Marxists would come in. These arrogant men, young men, and they were narrow and rigid and they'd come into these student centers and they would have brochures and they'd hand them out and they'd begin to talk to people at tables and she said what they said really you know, was abhorrent but, but there was something compelling about them that caused people to believe them. And she said, I thought about it a while and I figured it out. It was because they knew what they believed and they knew why they believed it. I'm absolutely amazed at the growth of these so-called religious groups, religious sects, religious cults. Did you know Mormonism is the fastest growing religious group in America? And in the Metroplex, every week, a hundred Southern Baptists cross over to Mormonism. And these men, these people, uh, target mainline denominations as their converts for two reasons. One is because they know that if a person's already a part of some mainline denomination, they have some interest in religion. And secondly, because they know that most of the people in the mainline denominations don't have the slightest clue as to what they believe. And so they go out there on Sunday morning and they knock on the door and when, they, when you come to the door, what they're saying does not turn you on. But as you listen, you begin to be compelled to what they say because you know they know something that you don't know and they know why they believe it. They know what they believe and why they believe it. I'm absolutely appalled and we all ought to be at the absolute ignorance that most of us have with regard to the basic foundational fundamental truths of the Christian faith. We don't know what we believe. And if we knew what we believe, we wouldn't know where to go in Scripture to substantiate competence. There's a second factor in this authentic sign for the, help of, for the sake of alliteration. It is coalescence. That is, selfness. Identification. Now, George Hunter says that Every person who is outside there, he's asking himself about you three questions. As a Christian communicator, whether a teacher, a witness, or what, he's asking himself three questions about you. First question, is he one of us? Is he one of us? He ran with the wrong crowd. So that these prostitutes and publicans, these sinners of the, of the lowest rank, loved to have him over for dinner because they felt this emotional connection, this identification. And from the first day he was baptized in the Jordan to the last day he was crucified between two thieves, he was so identified with the people he came to love that he was accused of their sin. Do they believe you're one of them? And Henry Newigen's marvelous little book called The Wounded Healer, he, he refers to this rabbinical legend of the day that Yahshua ben Levi came to Elijah and said, When is Messiah coming? 
And Elijah said, ask him. He said, well, where is he? He said, he's sitting at the city gate. Well, how will I know him, he said. Well, he said, he's sitting among the poor, covered with wounds. And all the rest, he said, unbind their wounds one at a time and bind them up again. But Messiah unbinds his wounds one at a time and binds it up and says, I may be needed and I must always be ready in case I'm needed. And Newagen's premise is this, that the twofold secret to ministry is this. It is the honest attention to our own woundedness and a willingness to move beyond to another person and make available to his woundedness the fruits of our own woundedness. In other words, Newagen is saying that the way to make an impact on your campus or on your community is to make available to the woundedness of others what you have learned in the honest grappling of your own woundedness. I lay bare my wounds and I show you how I'm helped and how I'm saved. And that's why D.T. Niles could say that evangelism is one beggar telling another where the bread is. And that's why Lloyd Ogilvy would say the only the truth that has happened to you can ever happen through you. He said don't ever traffic around in affirmations that may be true if they are not truth to you. And that's why C.S. Lewis said, just call me a fellow patient in the same hospital who having been admitted a little earlier can give you some advice. And Kipling's little work that we memorized when we were in kids, were kids, if, if you can talk with crowds and still keep your virtue, if you can walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you're one of them, you have credibility. The second question he said they ask is this, is he one with us? He looks like us. And there seems to be this identification, this emotional connection, but does he feel what I feel? I have a feeling sometimes when I go out to minister to lonely senior adults, I have a feeling when I leave, they're thinking, he doesn't know what I'm feeling. How could he know how I feel? Does he feel what I feel? Does he hurt the way I hurt? Does he, does he weep when I weep? Does he know, does he feel, does he understand? Now everybody knows that Will Rogers is known for his laughter. But one time he was performing in the Mary, Milton Berry Institute in Los Angeles. It's an institute that was for the rehabilitation of polio victims and quadri quadriplegics and people with severe injuries. And he was in there performing and everybody was laughing and it was jovial and gay. And all of a sudden he rushed out of the room and went down to the restroom. Milton Berry followed him to give him a towel, opened the restroom door and saw Will Rogers leaning against a wall, sobbing like a child. And so he shut the door and went back, and after a while, Will Rogers came back and just resumed the laughter and the fun and the gaiety. Can you weep with the erring one? And so I turn on the television and I see uh, uh, all that's going on, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the televangelist and the scandals that are involved in that. And what is the response that we've had toward that? Anger, some of us, and outrage. What we need is anguish. And the difference between anger and, and anguish is a broken heart. 
Anguish is what Moses felt when he came down from the mountain, saw his people worshiping an idol, smashed the stones, went back up in the mountain, and prayed in intercession for those people 40 days and 40 nights without food or drink. That's anguish. And anguish is what Jesus felt when he cleansed the temple one day and wept over the city the next. Anguish is that I can look at these, this suffering humanity that lies out before me and I feel their pulse and I weep with them and I hurt with them. Is he one with us? And Hunter says there's a third question they're asking, that is, is he one for us? Is he for me? Does he care about me to the point that he's for me, not for himself? Zorin Kierkegaard, the great existentialist, has the story of a group of, of, a, of, a, of a circus that came to town, a group of people in a circus, and they set up a tent outside the city, a little town. And they were getting ready for the performance that night, and the, and the, the circus tent caught on fire. And, and so they wanted to dispatch somebody back into the village to get help. It's about a mile away, and, and the only person who was really dressed and able to do that was a clown. So they sent the clown into town, and he went rushing into town, and he did everything right. He said everything right. But the people started, they laughed. They, they started laughing. They thought it was an act. And the more he begged and the more he went through the gyrations that the circus was burning down and he needed a fire, you know, they needed a fireman, uh, the, the more they did that, the more they laughed, the more it seemed like an act. Because they had, they had experience with these guys before, they, with clowns. They, they had certain expectations of them and they couldn't get past the expectation, you see. And that's the credibility gap that exists in modern religion. Watch me carefully. They've had some experience with us out there. And they have had some expectations of us out there that they've not seen. And so they're turning on their television and they're coming into the services and they're saying, why, it's just an act. And I suppose that more than at any other time, we need to come back, regroup, and ask ourselves this question. Why am I engaged in this thing called religious activity? Why am I engaged in this? Is it that I want something for myself or do I want to give something of myself? Now I know that it's true that any time you serve God, you get more in return than you give. It's true that the more you love the Lord and serve Him, the more you're blessed by that. But if that's the motive of your service, it's not a good motive. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the difference between need love and gift love. Now watch the difference. He said need love is this love that we give in order to get something back. And he said if you can trace, if you trace the cycle, it's always this, love going out from the subject to the object in order to bring something back from the object to the subject. Now this woman had knew five men, six men, but every one of them loved her in need-love fashion. Their love went out toward her so they could bring something back from her. And I have a feeling that when somebody turns on the television this morning and they catch these religious programs, they're thinking, what is the hidden agenda? Why is that guy doing what he's doing? I wonder what he wants from me. So that my love going out from me to you comes in order that I might bring something back from you to myself. Need love. And then he said there's gift love. And gift love has as its goal the enhancement of the object. So this Jesus was a one gift lover. 
And what a wonderful day it was when this woman discovered for the first time what gift love was. Can you imagine how that must have felt? Having had need love all of her life, she discovered gift love. And she went running into town and she said, Come see this man who loves me for who I am. And the scripture says the whole town came out. And when Jesus said, Look unto the fields that are white unto the harvest, that's the next few verses. I'm absolutely convinced when he looked up and he saw this crowd of people coming dressed in white, he said, Looky there, this field that's white unto harvest, these people who need gift love. And these disciples didn't ask Jesus, Somebody giving you something to eat? For Jesus, in essence, told them, I have meat, I have essential food, you know not of. I get what I need from somewhere else. I'm here for her. You see that? Is He one for us? There's one final factor in this, in this matter of uh, the ethos, the ethos of the, of the bearer of the gospel. Now hang in here with me. I call it consecration for the sake of the alliteration. Anointing. 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 Is he anointed? Is he anointed? Wiersbe tells about a story that came out of ancient Scotland centuries and centuries ago. Some guys were caught stealing sheep. And so the magistrate in the town sentenced them to prison. Before he did, he had a big S branded on their forehead so that everybody would know that they had stolen. They were, they, they, their, their crime was stealing, big S. And they spent their time in prison and they got out. One of the men left and was never heard from again. But one of the, the other man, now middle-aged, came back to the community. And he poured, poured his life into the community. He wanted to make restitution for what he'd done. And he began to love and serve and minister and care for people. And, and, and he lived his life as a minister to that community, loving and caring and serving. And they forgot what he did. It didn't matter to them what he did. And one day two little boys were talking. One said to the other, I wonder what that S is on the forehead of that old man. And the other little boy said, I don't know. But listening to my mother, I guess it means saint. A.W. Tozier makes the most profound statement I've ever read. I want you to get this. Listen, he said, before we follow any man, we need to look for the oil on his forehead. For we are under no obligation to give spiritual aid to any activity that does not bear upon it the marks of the cross. We are under no obligation to follow any man or give aid to any man who does not have the oil on his forehead and the marks of the cross on his ministry. We have no obligation to do that. We have no obligation to give our money, to give our time, to give our energy to any man that does not have the oil on his forehead or the marks upon his ministry. For there is only one gospel and that gospel is centered in the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of our Lord. And it's centered in the nature of God. Only one gospel. And he's so jealous of it. He said, if any man changes it, he's in danger of judgment. And that gospel is centered in the cross of Christ and the nature of God. For when you change the message, you change, uh, the message of God, you change the God of the message. And the God of the message is this, demands this. 
anointing and sacrifice. It's never changed. He said, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And it's interesting to me that whenever the Apostle Paul, he was constantly being asked to defend his apostleship. When he would defend his apostleship, he would, he would not get up and defend what he said. What he would do is this. Look at these marks on me. Look at these marks on me. I bear in my body the wounds of the cross. Therefore, follow me. marks of the cross. And so I may turn on the television and I may hear some preacher say that the God we have makes you healthy and wealthy and rich and prosperous and everything goes well. But where is the, that, the God in their theology of Abraham that called him to take his son and put him on, a sac, on, a, on, a, on an altar? And where in that theology is the God of Isaac who was willing to crawl up on that, on that sacrifice? And where is the God of Jacob whose sons brought him pain and, and disappointment? And where is the God of Moses in their theology that was forbidden to go into the land of promise because he wouldn't let God have his glory? And where is the God of the disciples who were harassed in prison and finally put to death because they wouldn't stop talking? And where in their theology is the God of Jesus who suffered like no other one suffered, smitten of God? When I see the marks of the cross, I'll believe it. And when I see the marks of the cross on your life, the sacrifice, I believe you, you see. And the anointing. And so when they arrested those disciples and brought them to trial, they said these guys are unlettered, unlearned. They don't have formal education, but they have been with Jesus. They have the anointing, the authentic sign. You spend much time with Jesus, you'll be much like Jesus. McChaney, the holy man, said, It is not great talent that Jesus uses, that God uses so much as great likeness to Jesus. And if you want to be like Him, then you spend your energy finding a way to continually commune with Him. For a soul spent in communion with the Lord imbibes His sweetness. I'm telling you, we need revival. That's a pious, Cliche, I know it. But we do. I do. Not just because there are millions and billions of people who need to hear Jesus, hear, hear about Jesus. Not just because the church needs a house cleaning. Not just because we've lost credibility with the world and they no longer will listen to us. Not just because we've, we've shamed ourselves in modern religion and, and we need to look better but because we have not been honoring God and glorifying Him. And when you don't glorify God, nothing goes right. Now let's get practical. How can I affect the environment of revival? Well, I think there are just two simple answers. One is that we need to repent. Repentance of sin. Listen to me carefully. I'm almost through. We need repentance. It means to be honest with our sin, about our sin. Martin Luther was right when he said, the ultimate proof of a sinner is that he does not know his sin. To be honest with yourself about your sin. To despair of it and to despise it. 
to make restitution for it and to confess it and to do those things necessary to keep, it, keep from repeat, re- repeating it. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Vance Havner said revival is just falling in love with Jesus all over again. The Great Commission, he said, is not the Lord's final word to the church. The Great Commission is our program to the end of the ages. But the Lord's final word to the church was repent. And then he said, it. listen, he said, we're trying to get volunteers to say, here am I, send me, before we ever get anybody to say, woe is me. Before you volunteer to engage yourself in trying to win people to Christ, you need to be join me in saying, woe is me, as Martin Luther did when he smote his chest and cried, oh, my sin, my sin. And then I think we need to return we need to return to the high and holy aims that we have depart- from which we've departed to get rid of everything that stands in the way of perfecting them, fulfilling them. We need to return to the fundamental principles of the Word of God, holiness. We need to return to the time when we'll have more people in prayer meeting than in committee meetings. We need to return to more time in the Word, more concern for one another. We need to find out what pleases the Lord and do that. The experiences in this, and I'm through, the experiences and the stories that happened in the 1981 New York Marathon were thrilling. An 81-year-old grandmother ran the New York Marathon and completed it. That'll set you free, Granny. You, you run 26 miles today. I mean, any of us. <laughs> makes me, Donnie Waller's the only guy I can do it for Mark. 81-year-old grandmother ran 26 miles in the New York Marathon. A guy that had had five heart heart attacks in his life had ran the the New York Marathon. A guy with a wooden leg, a man in a wheelchair. But the most impressive story of all was the story about a blind man roped to a sighted man who ran the 1981 New York Marathon. Blind man roped to a sighted man. And I suppose that the bottom line of all of this is that our Lord is looking for sighted men and women who will lash themselves to the blind and help them win the race. Let's pray together. Father, the call comes ringing o'er the restless wave. Send the light. Send the light. There are souls to rescue. There are souls to save. Send the light. You are the light of the world. I pray this morning that out of this congregation of young people, college students and high school students, all across this congregation. And those of us who have lived most of our life would come to a fresh new commitment to be indeed the light for this dark world. To stop hiding our light under 
the basket, but to be the light of the world. God, I pray for the women, children, boys and girls, men, who will say, I will lash myself this year to the blind man. Help him run the race. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. An invitation for you to come this morning to give your life to Christ. Jesus died, rose again, ascended in glory, and intercedes for your salvation. Would you come to Him this morning? Come professing your faith and trust in Him. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat. Maybe you didn't feel led to come last Sunday. You'll come today to say, you don't even need to stay down here. Just come. By your coming, say, I commit myself to reach someone for Christ, to win someone. I want to rededicate myself. I want to cleanse my life of that which makes me unbelievable. Or perhaps you need to come today to join the church and join this group that is a light set on a hill. Would you do it? While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.